Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This is a question for my listeners. Have any of you experienced where you keep on getting sinus infections over and over again? Which doctor do you go to? Do you go to your primary doctor and get another round of antibiotics? Do you go see a specialist? Chronic sinusitis is a debilitating condition for thousands of Americans. It's also a condition that's not well understood by doctors. That might be surprising. ENTs and allergists are the specialists that tend to care for the chronic, complicated cases of sinusitis, helping these patients get better. The current evidence is leaning toward chronic sinusitis not being due to bacteria. So in essence, this makes antibiotics superfluous. And it seems more likely it's due to some type of chronic inflammation that could be allergic or it could be fungal. Now, regular listeners of the podcast know that my background, I'm board certified in allergy immunology. So I'm hoping to have a really spirited discussion today with a colleague of mine I've known for over a decade, Dr. William Reisiker, a well-respected ENT here in Manhattan. Dr. Reisiker is a professor of otolaryngology and a director of the allergy services at Weill Cornell Medical College. He is also the founder of several healthcare companies, which we'll talk about. I'd like to note also, many ENTs, their training is surgical, so they're focused on surgical treatments for sinusitis. And I think a lot of them treat allergy as a hobby. (laughs) Dr. Reisiger, I believe, is really serious about allergies. And the only hobby that I'm aware of that he does is that he's a stand-up comedian. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, I haven't gotten to see him perform in quite a while because of COVID. I've known Bill for over a decade, and I consider him a compassionate, thoughtful doctor whose opinion I do greatly respect. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Bill Reisiger to the podcast. Dean, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's an honor. And I haven't seen myself perform that much either because of COVID, sadly. <laughs> well, maybe you're practicing your sets before this whole thing blows over, which has been quite, a, quite an experience for all of us. So yes, all right, yes. I'm going to start off with a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into some of the medical issues. Because I'm, I'm always interested, the specialists that I you know, interview and as I just mentioned, you know, many ENTs, I've been to meetings. I, I actually have attended in the past uh, the Otolaryngology Allergy Society. And I always got the feeling that allergy was sort of a side issue for ENTs, even though they, they see a lot of it, obviously, in their practices. I was just interested in what got you focusing on allergies in your career. And was it from like personal experience or was there a mentor or you know, what, what, what kind of got you involved? Yeah, I agree. That always struck me as funny, too. It, it seemed like allergies were like the Rodney Dangerfield of the ENT world, you know, right. <laughs> it just got no respect. But yeah, I came to it from a variety of things. Definitely, there was some personal experience that I had with allergies, particularly food allergies. I'm severely peanut allergic. Oh, wow. But when I first went into practice, I started out in private practice. So I made the unusual transition starting out in private practice and going back into academics about five years later. But where I was practicing up in the Hudson Valley, beautiful area in New York, 
but it is a hotbed for respiratory allergies. So I was treating all my sinusitis patients and I was doing surgery and I thought I was the greatest surgeon in the world, the doctor in the world, but people were still coming back with problems. Then I eventually came to the thought, well, you know, these people have allergies and I wanted to send them for evaluations. And eventually I said, let's just start adding this to my practice. So I went back in, I did more training, did a deep dive into how to do testing and immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. And it just completely changed the whole face of my practice for the better. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I have to believe also, yeah, a lot of ENTs, if they're open to it, have to realize that inflammation and allergic inflammation is a big part of what they're seeing. And yeah, I mean, surgery, obviously, and, and we'll talk about this in appropriate cases, can really make a huge difference. But again, when you have people coming back, even after having multiple surgeries, as you and I have both seen in our practice, you start to wonder, is it good to keep on going in there and doing procedures? Absolutely. Yeah. To your point, you were, you were mentioning how many things are, they think now are causing sinusitis. It's not just bacteria, but it's so many things. People ask me what causes sinusitis. And I'm like, yes. I mean, it's all, it's all those things. It's allergies, it's fungal it's all the irritants that are in our air, along with infectious virus and bacterial products. So it's all out there and it all is mixed bag. Okay, so let's go. We're going to go to the medical approach now a little bit. That, this is the part that I want to find really interesting because all of us as doctors, we sort of practice a little bit in silos. You know, we're seeing our patients, doing what we're comfortable with, hopefully getting a little better at certain things. So when you see a patient, let's say a patient comes to your office and is referred by one of the internists at Weill Cornell. And the patients had five or six sinus infections, supposedly anyway. I want to say, let's say sinus pain over the last two years or so. What's your approach? And can you give me like how you see those patients? Obviously, like, you know, what type of diagnostics and, and what you're trying to find that you think the other doctors might have missed? Yeah, sure. That's always difficult when we're seeing patients who have been to different hospitals, different doctors, that sort of many syndrome, you know, they've had many treatments, mm -hmm. many failures. Uh, it is, is always very difficult, but really the key is taking a really detailed history. And that's where it's so hard because we just, we don't have as much time. We never have enough time with our patients, but that is truly the key to diagnosis. You know, with all the fancy tests we have, CAT scans, MRIs, really, if you can find out about that patient, when they experience their symptoms and what they've done for it in the past, you can really tell a lot about people, you know, where is their pain coming from? Is this an infection or was it maybe not as many times an infection as they thought. That's a great point. I hope our listeners really appreciate that. And, you know, unfortunately today too, I have to tell a quick personal story because as you mentioned too, yeah, a lot of doctors are under the gun and having to see patients quickly and especially surgeons, you know, certain days that they're operating, other days they're seeing a lot of patients. And a personal story, I had a family member, it was really quite interesting, who developed a severe chronic sinus pain and discharge, never had it his whole life, and it became quite severe. And he saw, you know, in his area, several ear, nose, and throat doctors. They scoped him multiple times, ended up doing a CAT scan. This is what I was going to talk about the procedure, you know, uh, diagnostic testing, and showed all his sinuses were filled up. They gave him a round of antibiotics. You know, you're probably familiar with all this, obviously. They gave a round of antibiotics, didn't do it. Another round of antibiotics with steroids, still didn't get any better. And then what typically happens is Dr. Dean had to get involved. <laughs> you know, you try to stay on the sideline a little bit when it's a relative, but sometimes you just can't. 
And I knew the personal history. And what I did know was that, this was really fascinating, Bill, there had been water damage in his apartment building where he was living. The floor was literally bursting up. The family members had noticed there was a problem, but they kind of ignored it for about several months or a year. And then all of a sudden, the floor just basically exploded. (laughs) And it was because the building was doing work outside, water seeped underneath, and of course, there was mold. And that became a huge problem. And as I said, after seeing multiple ENT specialists, and a few of them, I know one of them, because then he went down to Florida for a while, threw her hands up, like, I don't know what to do. And I started getting involved. We'll talk about this a little bit later, about how to treat mold issues, because it's really tricky. It affects a lot of areas, but the sinuses are clearly an area you know, that's a problem. But just to get back to diagnostics, do you feel in those kind of cases, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them, but a, a CAT scan or an MRI is really important to see how extensive the disease is? Yeah, I mean, definitely. When it starts to get into the, the category of chronic disease, where you're seeing things that are not resolving after an appropriate amount of time and you've, right. you've treated them medically, definitely imaging is a big part of that to see structurally what's going on inside the sinuses. I think doing that early on in, in the very acute or the very early stages of the disease, then that's probably not as helpful. That's a good but point. Absolutely. You, you need the roadmap to see. This I mean, if it's more than three or six months. Yeah, I, I think oh, sure. that, that's almost like by definition. I think it's a good point and, and a very good point about not doing it too early because you're going to miss something. It takes time for these changes to really occur. Exactly. What would you say? I, I know I have my thing. What, what would you say are the three biggest factors that lead to these chronic sinus cases that go through your mind when you're seeing a, a patient? Yeah, I think definitely anatomic issues are a big part of it. Some people sure. just have poor drainage pathways or other conditions like polyps that are inside the sinuses right. or Absolutely. The sinuses. That's a big one. I think chronic inflammatory is big, whether that be allergic or what we call non-allergic, which is just kind of a inflammation from all the chemicals, odors, pollutants, particles that we experience in the air. And then, of course, you have all the infectious components, which now we've grown to appreciate infectious agents now over the past year and what they can do to us. I think those are probably the biggest factors. Yeah, you know, you just answered my list here. And, you know, the third one I, I just wanted to mention, because I know ENTs were really big on this for a long time. And I don't know if it's ever really been fully proven, is the whole idea of the gastric reflux. Mm-hmm. Do you find that in your patients? I and mean, do you think it's more a minor thing than, than some of your colleagues may? Because a lot of times, a lot of doctors, when they, the typical thing too from an ENT, when I see the patient, they've evaluated the structural. So if they don't think there's something operable like polyps or whatever, they rule that out. If they, do an allergy testing or do an immunocap with bloods and that's all negative. Now they're really getting frustrated. So then of course they're like, okay, it's reflux. You know, anybody's got a little bit of, and it's interesting. I take a little bit of a different twist on it. I think if people's microbiome is off, that to me would alert me more. But have you found like with the treating the uh, acid reflux ever any pretty dramatic cases with the sinusitis resolved or? Yeah, it kind of goes back and forth. Can acid reflux actually trigger sinusitis or, you know, or which is causing which? Definitely, there is a large overlap in people who have these conditions. And a lot of that can be symptom overlap as well. For example, Mm -hmm. people with acid reflux have a lot of post-nasal drip because the body is trying to neutralize all these acids that are getting up into the throat and, and even potentially into the back part of the nose. So you can get a lot of symptom overlap from it. Mm. I definitely pay attention to it. People who have chronic sinusitis end up taking a lot of antibiotics and steroids. You know, if anything, I'll give you reflux. That's the nightmare. I also do holistic medicine. And what I've really found 
that you have to deal with the microbiome issue. I think more and more yeah. we're starting to realize, I, I deal a lot also with a lot of kind of unusual rashes, especially the hives, the urticaria rashes. Yeah. Uh, my dermatology colleagues are amazed when I'm able to help some of these patients by rebalancing their microbiome because yeah. the antibiotics, unfortunately, a good thing got turned into a bad thing in a lot of cases. So to get to the question of how you treat, let's say, again, now a patient is looking for help from you. You know, they, they travel to the Upper East Side, you know, they come to see the Professor Reisiker and they're like, what are you going to do for me? I don't know. Do you find the nasal steroids, the combination of decongestants? One of the things that I like a lot, I'll be honest with you, this was magic for this relative of mine, was believe it or not, the Navage machine. You know, you, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's, yeah. it's basically like a, a fancy neti pot, but it really works yeah. amazing. You fill it up with distilled water. It has a special hypertonic saline packet in it. I put a couple other special ingredients in, and this thing shoots up into the yeah. nose like in yeah. 30 seconds and rinses it out. And I don't know. I think sometimes the irrigation is important. So what do you like to use? I tried that on myself, actually, I, I, a little yeah. while back. I could not stop laughing, to be honest with you. It sort of it sort of tickled the inside of my nose. I was oh, really? I was like rolling on the floor hysterical. I thought you told you told yourself a joke or something. I mean, I, we, no, no, no. So hey, listen, even if your patients use it, you know, they, they may still have sinusitis, but they're going to be just totally uh, tickled pink. You know, they'll really be happy. It doesn't matter. They won't care <laughs> yeah, anymore that they have sinusitis if they use that. So. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about the sprays, the sprays yeah. are a big deal. I mean, obviously, it's easy to use. If, obviously, if they're shown correctly, which I always emphasize to patients, make sure you're pointing it toward the outer aspect, you know, yeah. what's inside the nose, not to the septum. You're just going to get a bloody nose otherwise. Yep. But do you like any of them, you know, the nasocorts, the flonases, or even versus the antihistamine ones, the astylins? I mean, just, I want to learn from you. What do you, anything that you find to work a little better than others or safer than others? Yeah. I mean, for the, in terms of the nasal steroid sprays, I definitely go to those very often, particularly in my allergic rhinitis patients. I have them use, at least for a period of time, to use the steroids. I I tell them to use that like a foundation of their house. That's one that you use every day, not forever, but for a period of time. And then on top of that, you build in more of the as-needed medications. And that's, that's where the antihistamines come in, either spray, tablet, eye drop, and of course, the other things like saline, which you mentioned, which I think is very underrated. It's a, it's a huge go-to for me. It it's is. It's very right? safe. Mm-hmm. It can have lots of benefits. Yeah. So uh, like I say, I learned in my surgical training, the solution to pollution is dilution. <laughs> I like I that. That's a good one. <laughs> Just one thing on the decongestants, though, which sometimes you need them. I find that the antihistamines are a little bit useless in a lot of these patients. It, I mean, unless, again, it's a very strong allergic cause. And I do worry, I've always cautioned a lot of my patients to avoid the combined antihistamine decongestants, especially for a long period of time, like Claritin-D, Allegra-D, Zyrtec-D, because I've seen a lot of them, where even young patients, their blood pressure starts to rise, especially the diastolic. But it's tough. I mean, it's just really tough getting these people relief. And like you said, the sinuses are, are very, I always like to make the analogy to patients when I'm trying to explain to them how we want to get flow through there. I said, the reason, unfortunately, sinuses tend to get infected, it's like the comparison of like an ocean and a small pond, right? The ocean, right. unfortunately, you can pollute the ocean, but the, the circulation, the movement, everything gets swept out. Where a small little pond, which is like when I like to, when I, you see a picture of a cat scan of the sinuses, things can just really fester there, right? Yeah, those areas, they need oxygen, they need airflow. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when people have had inflammation over, over such a long period of time, the tissue has actually become sort of stuck in place. You can, mm. you can throw as many steroids as you want. You're not going to get those tissues to go down in size and to get those sinus passageways opened up. And that's where, unfortunately, sometimes it, it, it requires some 
surgical intervention just sure. to get the oxygen back into those spaces. Right, right. When I, I always tell people when the roads are all blocked completely and they just don't respond. Right. I mean, there's no magic to it, but I like yeah. to describe to the patients who have to go for surgery is that, you know, we do surgery to help the medications work a lot better. Mm, good point. There's no magic to the surgery itself, but uh, it really does help a lot, you know, because the medications alone aren't doing it and you need something else. Let's talk a bit about surgery and then we're going to get to allergy, which you and I both have obviously a quite a strong interest in. But what used to be the bane of, I think, even the ENT's practice and and it was for allergists is when patients had recurrent nasal polyps. I mean, it used to just be awful. I, you feel so badly for these patients. I mean, now the COVID patients can relate to it because these people can't smell or taste their food. They really are miserable. I, I just remember some just really salient cases of this. And typically they would have to go on rounds of oral steroids in addition to their nasal steroids just to be able to taste their food for a couple of weeks. And then they were back to where they were. Do you think, I'm just curious, the role of surgery in nasal polyps, and then also maybe we'll talk a little about the new biologics, which are quite interesting, like Dupixin. So just give me the latest, what you guys are finding when treating these patients that seem to have these, especially recurrent severe nasal polyps. What what are you doing for them? Nasal polyps are fascinating and frustrating as it comes, you know, for us, you know, and what we're realizing too is that not all nasal polyp patients are the same. Oh, okay. Some patients, you can uh, take out the polyps and they stay good for years and years. Whereas some people, by the time you got them back to the recovery room, they've already recurred. It's <laughs> the polyps have already right. come back. <laughs> I think we're learning a lot in the, in the genetic area, in the area of epigenetics. Mm. You know, all those heritable changes that occur to our bodies, the things that you can pass down, actually, that occur to you during your life. And people who have underlying genetic conditions what we call barrier defects, epithelial barrier defects. So the skin inside the nose just allows for more inflammation. Mm. Those people have a much more difficult time with their polyps. And so it's, uh, I think it's becoming more personalized as we go. And definitely as we move into the future, the treatment of nasal polyp patients is going to be different based on what they're bringing to the table. If a patient does require surgery, that tends to have to be a more invasive, complicated procedure, right? I mean, I'm familiar a little bit with sinoplasties. I, I know a lot of ENTs are, were doing it the last probably decade and it seemed like it was more of a, quote, minor procedure, even though I had a really great doctor mentor who always told me that minor procedure is always on somebody else, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's minor until it happens to you, right? <laughs> right. What do you think about the range of procedures? I mean, also, and are a lot of places, say Cornell, are they doing it a lot differently than at Mount Sinai? I mean, is there really like a lot of different schools of surgery, so to speak, you know, how these are being done? Yeah, I don't think there's drastic differences no. when you go, you know, from institution, particularly in, in the same city, but we always go for complete removal within the bounds of safety. You know, right. you want to, of course, uh, safety is the top priority. So you don't want to jeopardize a person's ability to smell. Right. Just to try to remove a couple of last polyps that are difficult to remove. So you want to do it as completely as possible, yet as safely as possible. And thank goodness we have, we have new instruments and new technology that's out there using image guidance and navigation systems that allow us to really have an accurate roadmap of where we are, where we're getting close to certain structures. Uh, so that, that's been a real, a real benefit. Are they doing any robotics for this kind of thing or not yet? 
robotics. Um, no. at our institution, not for polyp surgery, not yet. That's not that hasn't reached the mainstream. But you know, who knows what robotics is yeah, going to be? I mean, I'm trying to develop a robot who can give allergy injections to my patient. <laughs> You know, who knows? Who knows? Well, thank God I do. We're going to talk about it. Thank God I do drops. Otherwise, I'd really be uh, in trouble. <laughs> the robot would take my play. I heard about a <laughs> robot. You know, I had a patient prior to COVID, like a year or two before, who came back. And I forgot what we were talking about. But she said, they have robot dentists there. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think New Yorkers are going for a robot, anything, doctor, no, dentist yet. I'm not, I'm not ready for that. No, I'm not ready for that. What about, yeah, you're right. They at least want somebody who has a sense of humor. What do you think about the biologics? Like, you know, Dupixin, I've heard from some other colleagues, they feel like a lot of these biologics are really quite good at preventing from the polyps from recurring. Are you, are you using it in your practice or? In our practice, yes, we do use the uh, biologics. I think it's an amazing new tool that's available. Mm-hmm. They seem to work really well. Nasal polyps, definitely for allergic rhinitis and a whole host of other inflammatory conditions, asthma, eczema. It has really, I think, changed the game and changed the landscape. Yeah. As we move forward with any new technology, there's always some debate back and forth. Where exactly does that fit into my practice? Do I start something like that early on in therapy? Yeah. Do I start it? Before I try surgery, do I do it in between? How do you do it? So I think the debates rage on how exactly to integrate it into the practice. But I think those are just wonderful tools that are out there now. I know a lot of patients also that I see, again, doing some of the holistic, they're really a little bit reluctant, which I understand, because these are powerful medications. And how long can you take them for without some other type of immune suppression? Yeah, their downside, their expense, you know. And the expense, sure. Sometimes not always covered by insurance, and they do have some risks, you know, of yeah. severe allergic reactions. So mm-hmm. always have to take that into into mind as well. Well, let's talk about something that you and I both have a quite a keen interest in in sublingual allergy immunotherapy. I think it's really how we ended up connecting. I remember this is kind of funny actually. Once one of my listeners and patients know, I I started doing sublingual allergy immunotherapy over twenty. It's playing now twenty five years. And I was just really fortunate to get into the field. And I was like really alone. I was the only allergist I know in New York at the time that was doing it. There really weren't any even EMTs that I knew were doing it. And then I think one day, I think I saw you on TV. And maybe there was a thing. And it was like a bad spring season like we're having now. (laughs) And all of a sudden they said, Dr. Reisiger is doing sublingual allergy drops with patients. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm not alone. Because that was always (laughs) the question I always got from patients. They were like, how come you're the only one doing this? They thought there was something nefarious about it. Right, it was like voodoo. It was like voodoo medicine. Yeah, I'm doing this because I think it's one of the safest, best ways. It's how I would want to treat myself. So tell me how you got involved with sublingual allergy immunotherapy. Was it from the meetings at the AOA or something or from a colleague you picked it up or... Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think I think you saw me. I think I was on cab TV. I think that was the year I got onto <laughs> the, the cab TV. Yeah, must no, I think it was on uh, Main Street. <laughs> so yeah, I, I definitely, I got into sublingual immunotherapy uh, while I was still in private practice when I started the allergy practice in my private. private oh, really? Oh, okay. In Hudson Valley. Yes. I, mm-hmm. I definitely learned about it through the coursework, the fellowship coursework I did through right. the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. Yes. Yes. It made total sense to me to add on another option because not everybody wanted to go through shots. Uh, right. You know, that's a difficult thing. It's a big hit to the time, to the schedule. It comes with risk. Kids didn't really want to do it. Parents didn't want to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm amazed it survived all of these. You know, I always tell people they should, you know, like they have like an anniversary. It's over a hundred years. It's been around. Yeah. Just I'll tell you quickly too, whenever I give lectures to a new group of doctors that are skeptical or just wondering about things, I, I like to put up three slides. I always put up the first slide. I put up a picture of a cardiologist 
from the 1940s showing him with a stethoscope examining a patient and split screen showing on the other side, you know, the cardiologist with the latest echo, echocardiogram and all his new machines. Then I show another picture of an ophthalmologist with his ophthalmoscope looking in the eye of a patient. And then I show in the 1940s and I show, you know, a current ophthalmologist using all the new laser technology. Then I show a picture of an allergist in the 1940s with his long white coat and his <laughs> needle in his hand giving an allergy shot. And then I show 2020, an allergist in his white coat giving a needle into the person's arm. And I said, what's wrong with this picture? Why is this area of medicine not changed in, you know, know. In decades? That's exactly what I discovered when I went into allergy and I started training and I saw what was going on. I said, something's wrong here. I mean, it was a lot of low-hanging fruit. Yeah, it's <laughs> a time warp. I mean, what's, you know, you could, you could, it's like Rip Van Winkle. You could wake up and like, no, nothing's changed here. What, yeah. when, when, <laughs> when does that happen? Both of us have probably treated thousands of patients with sublingual immunotherapy. I've been impressed how safe it is and how many people have benefited from it. What's been your takeaway and what do you tend to really find it works well for like pollen, mold, animal dander? Is there any areas you have issues or, you know, you prefer it over injections? I think it uh, it works well for for all the the airborne allergens. I find it very helpful. Always the the challenges for me. Always cat allergy is always a, a tough one. I find you you have to treat with a little more extract. Absolutely, uh, no, I agree with you. I have two veterinarian patients. You no, know, they were in veterinary school. Can you imagine they were allergic to cats, dogs, and horses? And I uh, desensitized both of them. And yeah, I had to go to high doses on them, and it yes. but it worked. You know, so yeah. So I find it really helpful. I think it's great for people who are sort of young, on, on the go, uh, kind yes. of people like you and I, Dean, you know. Who wants to come to an office every week? I mean, you get tired of seeing the doctor, you know. It's like they love the fact that it's a home-based program, right, you know. Right. I mean, especially the, this time of year. And I wrote a book years ago, it was about 12 years ago, about called The Allergy and Asthma Solution. And I talked how I ended up getting into sublingual shots because I was a classically trained allergist. And I was giving shots every year. And every year, a few people would have a, an anaphylactic reaction. And I always remember the story when it was in 1998, I had a patient, a young woman, 25 years old. It was a beautiful spring day like today. You know, I gave a shot to, and she had a severe reaction. I went with her to the, the hospital, took a couple of epinephrine shots and she recovered, but I was shaken up and I was like, there's gotta be a better way. And I was, I tell the story in the book that I was fortunate. It was almost like serendipitous. I read an article in an obscure journal talking about doing the sublingual drops. And I'm like, why aren't we exploring this? Why would I have not heard yeah. about it? You know, of course, it always goes back to, oh, the insurance company doesn't pay for it at the time, even though it's safer, better, and the patients love it because it's a home-based program. It's personalized, so it can't be FDA, you know. Yeah. It can't be FDA approved. But yeah, yeah. I, I found the same thing with, with shots. You know, I mean, they're not to knock them. I mean, they, they are very effective. Yes, but yes they are. But it's strange to have, you know, uh, there's a disease that's not going to kill you, but a treatment for it that potentially could. Yes, that's that's what I struggled with over 20 some odd years ago. I switched my yeah. entire practice. I haven't given an allergy shot in over two decades. At the end of the day, it's just great to have options, you know, Absolutely. To, give a, Absolutely. to give a patient the options. Some people really want to come into the office to get injections, and that's, that's great. But then some people that's just not good for, you know, right. likewise, some people you give them a treatment to go home with. And they never do it. They forget it. Right. I, I was worried about that when I first started doing it, but I found tricks. Like I always tell patients, like I said, leave the bottle next to your toothbrush. I said, hopefully you're going to yeah. brush your teeth every day. And yeah. most of the patients, they wouldn't even admit if they don't, but they, you know, so most of them do do it. And as and, you know, I uh, took that concept one step further. Yes. We're going to get to that. <laughs> yeah. So let's have Dr. Rice put on his business hat because aside from being a professor 
at Wild Cornell. He's also involved, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he's founded and he's like medical director and consultant for like four companies, Alivate, Intraimmune, Novaplexus, and Easily Healthcare. So tell me a little bit about the companies, whichever order you want. And I want the listeners to know about Allerdent also, because, you know, I, I know I've been familiar with it for a while. It's fascinating. Give us a little bit of education on this. I'm exhausted just listening to you describe what, uh, what I've done in business. I thought they had yeah. more than one founder, but I'm like, no, Bill's doing all this in his, in his spare time at night. As if I wasn't busy enough, just like taking right. polyps out of people's noses. Now I had a, found a bunch of companies. But the companies that I work with and that I co-founded really came out of my clinical practice. There were some unmet needs that were going on and really pain points that I was experiencing. So at the end of the day, these companies are all designed to make me feel more comfortable. While sublingual was really taking off in the practice, I found that there were some difficulties with people adhering to the schedule from home. So that was a pain point for me. So that led to the therapeutic, which I'll talk about in a second. And I had issues with some of the diagnosis where people really thought they were allergic and I thought they were allergic, but their skin and their blood testing came back negative. And that ultimately mm -hmm. led to the brush biopsy uh, and the assay that I developed here at Cornell and patented. And then that led to the company uh, Immunevent. Oh, wow. Which was able to commercialize that test. Yeah. So most of the companies are in the allergy space, diagnostic and therapeutic as well. Novoplexus, that's a digital health tech. So I jumped into the tech world uh, and that is uh, still a work in progress. We're working on bringing price transparency to the world, to consumers, to healthcare yes, consumers. That is such an important thing. I mean, to all of us, it's a heartbreak. The fact that patients can't, myself included, you pay a lot for insurance, you get so minimal either back or your doctors that's affected the whole system. And it yeah. just doesn't seem right. With all our technology, you would really think that we could have a, a better solution to this, you know? I think that's a good idea for a future podcast, a, a yeah. whole conversation oh, yeah. just on how we fix this broken healthcare system. Yes. Oh, yeah. But uh, where Allerden came from, which yeah. is, the, uh, which is the, the, the toothpaste. So this came directly from my experience with sublingual immunotherapy. I had problems with some of the younger kids doing the drops. They just didn't want to hold them under their tongue. Right. And it was hard for people to remember to do it. Right. And of course, we know that the oral mucosa, the lining of the mouth, is so rich in immunologically active tissue yes. that I felt like I was leaving a lot of real estate behind, right? So a lot of those, those factors came together. And I said, well, what, how can we deliver these extracts to the lining of the mouth in a way that integrates perfectly with the daily routine? Right. And so then I set about to develop a toothpaste delivery system, some way that we can actually incorporate the extracts, right. same ones that we do for slit and for, yes. uh, for the shots and get them delivered while you're brushing your teeth. And that led to a lot of research and development to try to find something that was able to do that. It took a lot of work to actually do that. And we did some studies that were funded by New York State, and we studied that compared to sublingual, and we found that it worked really well. And then the clinical practice started building around the country. And now there's probably about 1,000 people around the country who are using Allerdent for their respiratory allergies. Wow. Just like they use sublingual immunotherapy. Right. And now there's uh, one of the other companies that I work with, Intramune, is actually going through the FDA approval process, studying it for peanut allergic individuals. Mm. I've been doing the sublingual for the foods the last two years. Uh -huh. Have you been finding that? Edward Kim, I, I had him on the podcast and Carrie Nadal, they've been doing it also. It's incredibly safe for obviously a very dangerous potential patient. And the literature is showing real efficacy. So it's great that you're working on that too, because that also, as we both know, is such a huge impact for especially young people 
in the country. You know, I should point out to the listeners too, I always find this fascinating when I give lectures on sublingual is I always like to show this picture of an American Indian. And then people I look at, like, why is he showing that picture? <laughs> and I like to show that it was fascinating, like where this whole idea of immunity in the mouth comes from, that the Indians had figured out, as you may know, that when they used to lick the leaves of the poison ivy, they wouldn't get poison ivy. And in fact, it would protect them when they were running through the woods there from yeah. getting it. So it's so interesting how the mouth, or you were saying the oral mucosa, can develop immune tolerance. Yeah. It's sort of, the, it's the best classroom you could ever ask because the things that we put inside our mouth, I mean, usually, I mean, obviously kids put a lot of things in their mouth that they shouldn't, right. but typically <laughs> the things we put in our mouth were the things that our body was supposed to accept. Right. Things like food, for example. Right. Whereas the things that penetrated through your skin were usually bad players. So those are things that the immune system has to learn how to fight against. Absolutely right. We really just exploit that the body's ability in the mouth to teach the body what it should tolerate and that's exactly what, what we're doing. It's a perfect location. Yeah, I think it's great. I think you're so innovative. And again, having more options for all various types of allergic patients, I, I think it's incredible. Right. It's not a one size fits all. You know, not every treatment is good for every person. Mm -hmm. You know, would you go to a restaurant if it only had one or two things on the menu, right? You want some, some options. Yes, you, need, you want some variety. <laughs> right. Some nights you feel like pot roast. Some nights you feel like uh, chicken, you know? <laughs> Quick question on the COVID front. Are you seeing this whole thing with patients, you know, getting anosmia, losing their sense of smell and forgot the term for losing their sense of taste, uh, agusia, I think it is, losing their taste. Are you guys seeing this in the clinics there? I mean, in the practice, is this uh, as severe as it's where we're hearing? Yes, absolutely. And, and this is such a, a devastating condition to happen to people. I mean, we see people who have regular colds they get a lot of nasal symptoms and then they can't taste as well or smell as well because of that. Right. But people who are suffering from COVID, even before they've developed any nasal symptoms, they're finding that their, their sense of smell and taste has gone out. And you don't realize how much you rely on that for your quality yes. of life oh, yeah. until, it's, until it's not there. It is so devastating. Thankfully, most people get it back, but Boy, it can, for some people, it can take a long time for it to come back. And you know what's horrible, which I'm reading, it's not, it's not even also just even the loss of taste and smell, which is bad enough like that. But some of the patients, even when they're eating foods, the foods just taste like really horrible. Yes. Yeah. yeah some you know people, what I mean? So just throw like, I've heard stories like gasoline and I mean, just crazy oh. stuff. And obviously, there probably can be more research into that, which would be great. So going to start a new thing. I'll start with Dr. Bill. Is there anything you want to ask me? that maybe you had on your mind, I'll, I'll throw out to you. How do you see the future of healthcare going? Do you see things getting better? Do you see doctors having more power? Um, do you see patients having more power in the healthcare system? I think the latter. You know, it's interesting when you say it because I do give a lot of thought to this and I think it's what's going on in the whole world in every aspect. I think patients are so much more empowered, which is exciting. The fact that patients come in now and they get their labs faster than I get it. It's on their phone. Oh, here, Dr. Mitchell, I have the labs that you ordered and we're looking at it together. I like to tell patients, I love the fact that, honestly, that on the internet, they can get a lot of information so that we're, we're talking on a very even level. It's not like the doctor's on the pedestal anymore. What I like to share with them is I say, like, I just hope I'm taking care of thousands of patients that have had particularly their condition that I have at least experienced to guide them through it. But I think there's going to be a lot more patient self-empowerment. That's what they want. And I think as doctors, I don't think we're, we're going to be going away. I mean, people need doctors, but I think we have to change in our role in the sense that to really bring that, that value 
to a person that's going to spend their time and their money with us. And I, I think telehealth has been helpful too, because again, what I'm telling patients also is interesting. I've been doing around the country a lot of telehealth consults since things have opened up with COVID. And it's actually pleasant because like in this podcast and this video, I can see your face. You know, when people are in our offices, they're all masked up and everybody's mumbling through the masks. It's, it's actually for the first visit. It's not so bad doing a telehealth. Right, right. So that's what I see. I think healthcare is still very episodic. We see our patients at one point and then we don't see them for another another six months. We don't really know what happens to them or what they're doing or what their health is like in between. Yeah, that needs to change too. You're right. I think that with the whole thing, with some, whether it's apps or algorithms yes. and where doctors get alerts or patients get alerts, I think that's all where, I mean, really good companies. I, you know, I'm not involved with any of this, but what I, I love to have my mind. I think of these ideas and I think that's where there'll be tremendous improvement Yes. in our health. And because uh, people are interested, they really, they really want it. I mean, I'm, I'm so impressed with so many patients that I see. They are real advocates. So it's no more being a passive patient anymore. The PP is gone. Hopefully the next generation of doctors that we've been training will be open to that and realize that's where things are going. So I think so. I mean, they're going to be more on board with, with technology. And, yes. and I think they're going to be willing to work with technology companies Yes, yeah, that, right. It could be that partnership. That, that ribbon of care. So, you know, yeah. you, there's a continuity of care with your patient. Yeah. Well, this was great. It's so great seeing you again. And this turned out to be the spirited discussion that I was hoping for. So <laughs> we could probably go for, on a few more hours if you want. Uh, we, may, we may have to do a, a sequel to this. We'll do a sequel, definitely. But I'll let you go back to your practice and your multiple companies. And please keep me on your list when uh, Stand Up New York and all those places open up again. I want to see my favorite doctor comedian in person. Dean, thank you so much for having me on the show. All right. Take care. All right. Be well, Bill. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.